Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. If you are a Christ follower in the room tonight, if, if you've moved from being a crowd or a critic and, and actually ste- stepped out on that journey of following Jesus, or, or maybe you are in that crowd position, maybe you're simply here tonight on a journey trying to navigate and find answers to life's questions, regardless of where you're seated in the room tonight, crowd or critic or skeptic or, or follower, have you ever stopped to fathom why one third of the world's population has a professed faith in Jesus Christ? Have you ever stopped and maybe asked that question why? Why today, right now, in fact, in in America, the church is awake based on the time zone and all day today, why hundreds of millions of people have gathered on this day, whether in a church setting like this, whether in a rented cafeteria or whether in a cave, and, and hundreds of millions of people are worshiping Jesus Christ. They're calling out on Jesus Christ. Right now, today, all over the globe, millions of people have actually made a decision to serve Jesus for the first time. That even today at Ed Church and at Victory Church and all over Australia, people in all church settings are actually coming to Christ for the first time, regardless of age or ethnicity or gender, that they're actually saying yes to Jesus. Have you ever stopped to fathom the movement you are a part of? That you're just not a part of a local church, but you're part of a global church movement that started 2,000 years ago. Have you ever stopped to ask why? Have you ever stopped to ask why next Sunday, one week from today, hundreds of millions of people, over a billion people on the planet will celebrate Easter? And I'm not talking about the bunnies and the baskets and the candied eggs, which are job security for every dentist all over the world because candy produces cavities and like, bring on Easter. Like it's their time. It's like we're going to go forever in, in dentistry because of Easter. No. Have you ever stopped to fathom why hundreds of millions of people, can you imagine what we're a part of right now, a week from today, are actually going to be celebrating the life of a Jewish carpenter? A Jewish carpenter who didn't live more than 33 years, who never traveled more than 100 miles, who never had any formal education, who only had a public ministry for three years, but somehow next week, hundreds of millions of people are you going to night to celebrate this man, Jesus. Have you ever stopped to wonder why the early church even survived the first century? In the midst of persecution, where Christians were being killed left and right, dragged from church settings like this and hung on cross and burned at stakes and impelled with spears, like why the church didn't just survive it, but actually thrived through it, that that early church was infectious and contagious and could not be contained and could not be stopped. Have you ever asked yourself in the back, why? Why this early church that didn't even have what we have, the luxury of screens and technologies and microphones and platforms and buildings that look like this. They didn't have the luxury of this book called the Bible. Do you know that the first 300 years as the church exploded around the globe, they didn't even have the New Testament. 
They didn't have the luxury to say, you know, as it says, you know, in First Corinthians or as Galatians. No, it was actually Paul writing a letter to Galatians. Do you know that the first 200 years, you might not know this, after Christ's life, that for the first 200 years, they didn't even have the word New Testament? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself why? With all of that in mind, the church is bigger and brighter and stronger and more resilient today than it has ever been in human history, why nothing has been able to stop what Jesus started 2,000 years ago. Have you ever asked yourself why? I would propose to you tonight that the reason why the church is what it is, the reason why we're here tonight worshiping, the reason why we're seeing the testimonies on the screen is not simply because of Jesus's parables or principles or practices. It wasn't because of motivational slogans that Jesus regurgitated and his followers regurgitated. It wasn't because of his eloquence and his communication capacity. That is not, friend, the reason why we are all here tonight and the church is what it is. I would propose to you tonight that the reason isn't the, the fact that Jesus did miracles amongst men. That, that's not the reason why we're here. It's not the fact that he spit in some dirt and made some miracle mud and rubbed it on an eye in the blind eye that had never seen saw. It's not because ears opened or he did it or, or feet that had never known the, the facets of mobility began to move for the first time or that he grabbed the filet fish Happy Meal and multiplied it to feed 5,000 people. That's not the reason why. We are here. I would even propose to you, and please let me finish the message before you judge this moment in the message, that the reason why isn't even because of what Christ did on the cross. Hear me. Isn't even because of the sacrificial love demonstrated on the cross. Because when Christ died 2,000 years ago on that Friday, the Jesus movement died with him. When Christ died on that Friday, the message of Jesus Christ died with him. You might not know this, but unlike every other religion on the planet, the, the message of Jesus was not behavioral modification plans. It wasn't seven-step processes. It wasn't an ideology of a life to live. The point and central focus of Jesus' message was Jesus. Jesus didn't say, hey, listen, cast your cares on a system or cast your cares on a principle. He actually looked to the crowd and said, cast your cares on me. Jesus didn't say, hey, come to a building, those that are weary and heavy laden. He didn't say, come to a program, those that are in need of rest. He actually said, come to me, those that are heavy burdened and, and those that are worn out. Jesus didn't say, hey, build your life on some practices or principles. He said, no, I am the foundation, the rock that you can build your life on. Jesus did not say there's multiple ways to God. He didn't say all religions are the same. No, Christianity is extremely exclusive. Jesus looked at the crowd, the critics, and those that would crucify him, and he said, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. The central focus of Jesus's message was Jesus. That's what I love about church, is that we're not talking about just a worship song, or a stage, or a man, or a name. We're pointing everything every service to one person Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone I'm preaching better than you're responding tonight and when Jesus died 
that day, the main character of his message, what this ancient manuscript called the Bible points to. Can you fathom that 66 books in the Bible written by 40 different authors compiled over 14, 1500 years, three continents and three languages all point to one person inspired by the spirit. And that one person is Jesus. And on that day, when he died, his message and the movement died with him. Think about it. When Christ exhaled his last breath on the cross that day, Judas had betrayed him. Peter had denied him. The disciples had deserted him. The crowd that saw him do the miracles had just yelled, crucify him. When the sun had set and the dust had settled and the stone was sealed, there was no believers to be found. There was no Christ followers to be found. In fact, three days later, when he declared he would come back to life, no one was waiting at the tomb with confetti and sparkling cider. There wasn't a countdown clock. There wasn't a group of believers and followers. Yeah, it was sparkling cider because we're Christians. You never know where you're at in your walk. You know, something like was wine, sparkling cider, let's just keep it holy. He, there was no count, countdown clock. They were like 10, 9, 8, 7. No one was waiting for his return. Do you know that? The disciples were hiding, afraid of the religious leaders. No one was at the tomb waiting for Christ to come back. No one was there prepared for his resurrection. In fact, the only group of people there was a group of women that were there to prepare his body for proper burial. In fact, let's go to Luke's gospel as we look at the story. As you guys have been on the journey towards Easter, I think this is significant and I might be jumping a, a little bit ahead of where you're at in the process, but I believe this is significant for what God wants to do this week in the life of this church and your life. Luke chapter 24, verse one, please pay attention to what's being said here. It says, but very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse four. As they stood there puzzled, the logical conclusion was not that Christ was alive. The logical conclusion was that they did not know what was going on. In fact, in John's gospel, it gives the account of Mary running back to the disciples saying the master's body had been stolen. Even the empty tomb does not explain why we are here today because in the sight of the empty tomb, which we know God rolled the stone the way, not so that Jesus could get out so that we could get in, but even in the midst of seeing the empty tomb, they were still perplexed and confused at what had taken place. It says two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember that he took you back in Galilee, that he told you back in Galilee that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day. Then they remembered that he had said this, so they rushed back from the tomb to tell even his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. Look at verse 11. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. Even 2,000 years, years ago, men still didn't figure out that their wives were right and they should have just listened. <laughs> Let me save you some marriage problem, husband. Your wife's like the Holy Spirit. Just shut up and say yes. She's heard from God, amen? And all the women said? Yeah. Amen. I love it. 
Isn't it crazy that in the midst of the women coming back and saying, angels talked to us, told us Christ was alive, that the disciples were still filled with doubt? However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look, stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. It wasn't until that evening, it wasn't until that Sunday night that everything changed. In John 20, verse 19, it gives an account of this moment. It said, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors. Even after the grave was empty, they're still meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And he spoke. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. My friends, this is the moment that explains why the church is what it is today. This is the moment recorded in scripture that explains why over a third of the world's population professes the faith in Christ. This is the reason why people are making a decision for Jesus every single day, that the Bible is the number one selling book, most distributed, written manutext in all of human history. This is the reason why. It wasn't that Christ walked on this earth as a man. It wasn't that he did humanitarian works and that he had a great love and compassion for people. It wasn't even the fact that he died on the cross. It was in this moment that Jesus was no longer a sacrificial lamb, but was now a resurrected Savior and King. It was this moment where the reality hit them that Jesus is alive. I don't know if you heard me. Our God is not a statue that has been fashioned by man, created by our imagination. In fact, we are the, the thing that was fashioned by God, created by his imagination. He's not still on a cross. He's not still in a grave. He's not a ghost that we hope will come back someday. He is alive. He's alive. This... This changes everything. As I prepared myself for this, this message this weekend, I've spent moments in each part of the story. I've sat there at the lonely cross when even the father of Jesus forsook him and there was no believers in sight. They actually hid. They actually fled. Judas was hanging himself. It was a horrible moment. I've sat there in the rooms hiding behind locked doors where I've, the, the group of disciples are sitting there conversating about how they're going to rebuild their life. They followed him messiah who turned out to simply be a man who was now dead and, and for their mindset it was probably the greatest ponzi scheme in history what they bet on and believed in and walked away from their jobs for and leveraged their life wasn't working out the way that they planned and they're sitting there saying can we ever get a reputation back can we ever go back into society we pledged our lives to this man and he's dead and defeated i sat there at the tomb where mary is there and it's empty and you're sitting there going what does this possibly mean but it's not until I'm in this room with the disciples where Jesus Christ shows up and he says, I'm not a ghost. I'm alive. Touch the holes in my hand. Touch the, the sore on my side. Give me some food to eat. I am real. Yeah. Do you know what this means? It changes 
everything. If Jesus is alive, it means that everything he said was true. If Jesus is alive, it means that the promise he has for you, the plan he has for you, the divine design he created you for, is actually can come to pass. If Jesus is alive, it changes the way we walk. It changes the way we talk. It changes the way we love. It changes the way we give. Are you with me tonight? When Jesus is alive, it changes how we live. Changes. Changes everything. This was the message. This was the message they took to the world. Isn't it crazy? That they didn't run out there and say, hey, let me tell you about the Ten Commandments. Let me tell you this parable. You know what the message of the gospel was? Christ came. You killed him. He rose back to life. We saw him. It's time for you to serve him and receive his salvation. Do you know that was the message that exploded the church all over the world? It wasn't this ideology of love or being compassionate or a lifestyle of generosity. It was no like God came to the planet, put skin on, we killed him, he came back to life, and guess what? You now have a chance to serve him and receive his saving grace. Get saved today. That was the message. Isn't that crazy? This is a story that could not be fabricated. Let me build the case for the skeptic or the critic in the room. Maybe you're on the outskirts of the conversation looking in saying, I don't know if I really buy into all the hype and the emotionalism taking place in the room. It's got to be a story that some crazy men crafted and drafted thousands of years ago. Well, if they did that, don't you think they would change a few things if this was a made-up narrative? Because everybody in humanity knows, everybody in history knows that Christ lived and died on the cross. And history does not debate on that but the resurrection part, they do. But if this story was made up, which would be a sick story, it'd be, it would be so disgusting for you to watch your kids die like Peter did and your wife get burned at the stake like the disciples did and simply go, we made it up, but we're gonna let everyone die because of it. If you wrote this story and it was not real, you would change some of the facts. The first thing you would do is not draft yourself in as a coward. Think about it. If I'm like faking this story, I'd be like, well, first of all, I was at the tomb. I knew like I had built this monument for God. Like we had like the grapes out. You know, we had the bruschetta. We had the prosciutto. You know, we had like a cheese assortment. Wine was flowing everywhere. Like, I mean, I was waiting. I was telling everyone. Like I was on a trumpet in front of the religious leaders. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. Like I would change. I would change the story, right? If you knew Jewish culture and tradition in the first century day, guess what? You would never have had a woman be the first person to see and testify about Jesus. Now, you might not know this woman. Please don't judge me. That's not victory. We like want the women to say it first, and we know that you're right the first time, but culturally in the first century Jewish culture, the, the testimony of a woman was invalid. It actually was not allowed in the court of law. You could never use a woman's testimony to verify or validate a single truth. So there was no reason if the disciples were trying to create a narrative that would spread around the world, exit woman, insert man, this makes more sense and more believable. But the only reason why women were the first people to see the empty tomb and to tell the disciples about it is because they were the first people to be at the empty tomb and to tell the disciples about it. It's the only logical conclusion. And in that moment, in that room, when Christ showed up and he was alive, the disciples realized this meant a few things. If, if he was alive, not only, thing he, not, not only everything he said was now true, 
and certain and a conviction came inside of him because you got to understand we're the only religion that is not talking about a belief system or something that was revealed to us in a, by a spirit in a cave or an angel of light. We're actually the only religion that says this is not what we believe, but this is what we actually saw. You know that, right? The disciples weren't saying this is what we believe or we got to carry these ideologies of Christ. No, they're actually saying we saw him in the flesh. And not just the 11 that followed him, but over 500 accounts of individuals seeing Jesus Christ post the cross. You just can't make this up. We're not testifying to the world, friend, of what we hope will happen or what one day we think would be good. We're actually testifying what a group of people saw, hundreds of people saw 2,000 years ago, the living, resurrected, victorious Jesus Christ. He was alive. And, and if he was alive and he conquered death, in that moment, that meant that they could be alive and that they could conquer death. I, I love how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You need to understand something, friend. 2,000 years ago, Christ wasn't the only person on the cross. That 2,000 years ago, the old you was on the cross with him. The hurt you, the broken you, the hopeless you, the empty you, the addicted you, the abandoned you, the in bondage you, the broke you, the destitute you, the desperate you, the you you didn't like, the you you didn't want to be, the you that needed saving and rescuing and restoring, that you died 2,000 years. What does the author say under the revelation of the Holy Spirit? I have been crucified with Christ. He didn't say, I will be crucified like Christ. He actually said, I, will be I was crucified with Christ, which means before you were born into a fallen world, before you walked in the sin and the lust of the flesh, that Christ had already crucified the old you so that you could be born again as the new you. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Ephesians 2, Paul continues to walk through this revelation. In verse 1, it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us, everyone in this room, including me, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, please, verse four, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we're dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Are you hearing what he's saying? He didn't just say he's making you alive like Christ. He said he made you alive with Christ. It actually says he raised you up with Christ and actually seated you in heavenly realms with Christ. It doesn't say one day you will be with Christ. One day you will be raised like Christ. One day you'll be seated with, no, it actually says you were made alive 
with Christ. Do you know next week you're not just celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're celebrating the resurrection of your new life. That it's actually your spiritual birthday. 2,000 years ago, Christ didn't only drag your sin to the cross, he dragged your lifeless body through the grave so it can come from death back to life. And we are now seated with Christ. Sometimes as Christians, we lose sight in the perspective of our position with Jesus. You are not seated in this room right now. You're not living for eternity. You're actually living from eternity. You've actually been resurrected with Christ, raised up by God with Christ and seated with Christ right now, which means we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory, which means we weren't just saved from something. We were saved for something, which means we were left on the planet to survive it. We're left on the planet to thrive in it. God didn't leave you here to make a point. He left you here to make a difference. And if you could see the perspective that God had, that's why you can meet people that are in the worst situations of their life and they still have a joy that's unconditional because joy is not an emotional response to a temporary stimulus. Joy is a permanent condition of the heart that is seated on what Christ did in the cross and birthed in the grave. That was some good news right there because they know they're seated with Jesus. If you could see what Jesus sees and seat yourself where Jesus has seated you. Your storms look different. Your trials look different. Adversity looks different. Sickness looks different. It's not like I hope you're going to come. No, he already came and you went with him. And you're sitting here saying, come on, just catch up to where Christ has already taken to you. It taken me. You've been raised to life with Christ. Is this helping anybody tonight? It's by grace you've been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms that we could get the band up in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Listen to these words. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want to point out a few things in verse 9. One, we weren't saved by good works, but we were saved for good works. Did you hear that? He actually says, no, it's not the works that got you there. It's not the effort that produces salvation, but salvation should produce effort. I love it. At Edge and here at this church, there's this desire to, to pursue excellence. Excellence requires effort. But you're not saying, I, I need to use effort so that I can be excellent, so that God will now accept me and receive me. No, it's because you've been accepted and approved by God that your response is, I really want to live a life of excellence and effort because of what he did, not so that he'll do it. And what does he say? I, I, I noticed this earlier today. It's so significant. He says, you're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Do you know that the moment that you were resurrected with Christ, you became a new creation? That that was the moment you were formed and fashioned by God for his divine design on the planet? Which means not a single person is a mistake or an accident, that if you're in the room tonight, you're here by God's plan and purpose, and you might be far from him and not know your purpose, but the moment you say yes to him, guess what? Your purpose is now created. You actually are now created in Christ Jesus, with Christ Jesus. Listen, your parents might not have wanted you to be alive. You, you might have been abandoned or orphaned, and 
He, you might thought, man, my, my parents didn't want me, but God wanted you so much, he used your parents as the vehicle that brought you into the earth. Listen, you didn't come from your parents, friend. You came through your parents. God loved you so much that even if your parents didn't know what they were getting, God said, I don't care if they want to be involved. I want them on the planet, so I'm going to use them to bring that person into the world. Come on, somebody. In this moment, when they realized they were alive, with Christ that they could live a new life there was another revelation that was birthed if they were alive it meant that other people were dead if they were alive if they were the, the few groups of people that actually saw the resurrected King Savior and Messiah and if this produced new life because they said yes to Christ that didn't only mean that they were now alive but that other people who did not know were still dead. This is what led them out of the upper room. This is what led them into the midst of persecution and punishment and a potential demise or death. This is what led them to go beyond their comfort zone, to walk hundreds of miles, to get on ships and taste the gospel. Why? Because they knew that they were alive, but other people were still dying. You know, in 2011, I was... I was on the Amazon jungle. I was on a missions.me missions trip as an organization that I now have the privilege of, of leading with an incredible team. Dominic Russo founded it, who was here a few weeks ago. How many enjoyed Dominic Russo? Yeah, come on, one of the greatest humans on the planet. And I was on my, my first trip with them, and I didn't want to go. My father-in-law paid for me to go. I said no. He forced me to go. He gets all the credit for this wonderful thing that God's done since then. And, and I remember we're in the Amazon jungle. We're, we're, we're sleeping on a shipping tanker that's literally going through the middle of the Amazon jungle. It's open air. There's no windows, and we're sleeping on hammocks. Quite dangerous. And we took 70 people and 40 Peruvians with us. We had three showers. The men had three showers, which were also toilets. So above you was the shower nozzle. Below you was the toilet seat. Man, you can multitask like none other. It was unbelievable. It's the Who says that? I'm so sorry. And it's the fourth day on the Amazon. And for, for four consecutive days, we were faced with the overwhelming depravity of humanity. There is so much loss, so much heartache, so much hurt. We would see incredible miracles every night. And the people that got healed, literally arms started moving, gross or tumors were, were falling off bodies. Even in the midst of a miracle, they could not smile because they had been robbed by their circumstance of the ability to respond with joy. They had lost the capacity to have joy because of the years of hardship and a state of destitution on the Amazon. I remember going to these villages and you could just see it in the eyes. It was, you know what every eye said? Help. Please help. Get me out of here. Take me out of the jungle. Everybody was sick. There was incest everywhere. Physical abuse, mental abuse, spiritual abuse. This is the reality. You could buy a boy or a girl in the Amazon jungle for a hundred Australian dollars to own. Not for a day, not for a moment, to own. This was in the midst this is the midst of the depravity we're in. And on the fourth day, our, our boat was pulled up to the side of a cliff. And, and all of a sudden, this canoe starts coming out of the distance. And it's a woman canoeing, and she's sweating, and she pulls up. And I remember looking over the side. I'll never forget it. And there was this blue tarp that was covering the front of the canoe. And as she pulled off the tarp, there was a lifeless male body in it. 
And I remember that some of the kids were like checking it out and start freaking out. Some of the parents were like, oh my gosh, someone's dead or someone's really sick. Then other people with faith started praying and this woman was screaming out in Spanish to the villagers above, just screaming out. And all of a sudden a, a bunch of men ran out and they climbed down the cliff and it was about a, you know, a 10, 11 meter cliff. And they grabbed this body and I'll never forget, they dragged it up the cliff. And it's just going up the rocks and four men grabbing the legs and just completely looking lifeless and dead and threw them down on the ground. And the woman climbed up the cliff too and she's screaming. And, and our doctor who were traveling us ran off the boat. And, and some of our, our pastors from the Amazon ran off the boat. Rigo, our international director, ran off the boat. And I remember lacing up my shoes. I couldn't get them tied up fast enough. And, and, and the story goes that he had attracted pneumonia on the Amazon River. He had fainted or passed out, uh, you know, on the other side of the Amazon about three-hour canoe ride away from this location. And the only reason why he was there is because there's a medical Red Cross, you know, hut that had been set up years ago that sometimes shippers would drop off aid for villagers to go. And she had known of this location. And it just so happens to be the same day that we're there. She's canoeing her husband three hours to this location. And our doctor assesses the body and its condition and says he's dead. He said he's probably been dead for about 30 minutes. There's nothing we can do. And our pastor said there's something we could do. And I'll never forget, it's about from where I am to the wall there. I'm running and I can see him. And they just scream in Spanish, come back to life in Christ Jesus. And this, there was a vote that went through this body. I mean, I saw this body convulse. And I'm like, what's going on? And I run up there and he, he's now starting to breathe. But to be very honest, he still looked like he was going to die. It didn't look great. And we start praying and the wife's screaming. And, and we go, hey, let's get him on this card and, you know, take the horse and run him to this, you know, this medical hut there. And, and later that night, we, we visit the hut and we walk in and he's sitting up, colors back in his body. He's completely alert. He's alive, people. And we began to ask what happened. And she tells the whole story that she heard about how he got here. And then we said, well, we, we prayed for you. And we prayed that Jesus would bring you back to life. And they said, who's Jesus? They had never heard the name Jesus in their life. We started telling them about a Jesus who loved them so much. He refused to let him die before he had the ability to introduce them to the gift of his grace. And the husband gets saved. The, the wife gets saved. The doctor gets saved. The chief of the tribe gets saved. God does some incredible things that night. Come on, somebody. And I remember, I remember that night was different kind of felt like the disciples. Everything changes when the dead are raised. So there's a new perspective on the name Jesus Christ and the power that resides in us as believers. There's a new perspective on this life and changes the, the destination of your daily activities. And I started having this conversation with God. I'll never forget it. The skies were open. The clouds were out going down the heart of the Amazon jungle. The boat's moving and I'm sitting there like a wreck. And I'm like, God, what am I going to do? The dead are being raised. This is crazy. How am I going to tell people? No one's going to believe me. I'm having this conversation. And then I just started talking about the need. I said, God, everyone's dying here in the Amazon. People are sick. People are lost. People are broken. People are hurting. Like, we got to do something about the Amazon. They're, they're going to die. They're, 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 gonna, they're not going to be able to live much longer. What are we going to do? God, I'm going to sell a house. I remember I started this conversation. God, I'm going to sell a house. And I'm just going to walk away. I got to do something for you. My life has more significance than just creating wealth for myself. And I had this conversation. And God says these words to me they're just as dead back home 
And I remember sitting there going, no, 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 no. We're not just as dead back home. Where I lived at the time was Palm Springs. We have 132 golf courses. I live in a beautiful gated community. I said, no, we got the El Paseo and the River guy. We got the shops. Like, you don't know. Hey, God, we live in Adelaide. We got this beautiful city. The crows are winning. Like, God, we're, we're, not, we're not in desperate need. No, no, no. They're not as dead. I, have you seen the cars we drive? Have you seen the phones we use? We got electricity. We got internet. No, no, no. God, we're not dying like they're dying. He goes, Jedediah, you've been so distracted by the stuff that that they have that you've lost sight of the savior that they don't have you don't understand that when you go to work tomorrow there's going to be people in the car next to you that might be driving looking alive but based on scripture they're dead and their transgression in light of eternity if you don't have a relationship with me the default destination of their life is not heaven it is actually separation from jesus and because this is a mist or a moment that god doesn't even give credit to that life he says no they're as good as dead he said the mom's taking their kids to school that Monday morning. They may look alive on the outside, but if they don't have me, they're just as dead as that man in a canoe in the Amazon. They're just as dead to purpose, just as dead to my plan, just as dead to my promises, just as dead to my, they're dead. Remember, it changed everything. He removed the veil from our eyes. Do you realize, friends, that sometimes we have this veil over our eyes that we look at life through the mundane and, and the earthly and we lose sight of the eternal. And if you could remove the veil from your eyes to see the current state of people's eternal disposition, you would do something about it. The fact is right now, if someone just started having a heart attack in church, we wouldn't be like, hey, let's keep worshiping. He can do it again. Like we wouldn't just start singing. Uh, if you were at your... Your, your local coffee shop tomorrow and someone started choking, you wouldn't just walk by and be like, man, did you see the footy last week? So grab the crows won. Like this is, you would stop and do something. Are you hearing me? It is the nature of humanity to have the decency to respond to need if we know it's present. And the reality is, is you might not see them choking on the outside or having a heart attack on the outside, but inside that is the state of their soul. They are dying and spending eternity away from Jesus. And if you would actually see it, you would do something about it. You know, earlier this year, my, my close friends, almost done, almost done, don't worry. My close friends, Matt and Melissa Sheehan that run an organization with me, very similar to Jasmine's story, it's crazy that we're gonna share this tonight, hearing Jasmine's story, but they, they gave birth to Ellie Faith and for the first 20 minutes, everything was perfect and then something went critically wrong and all of a sudden they're trying to bring her back to life and they put, put her in a, a, an ambulance and rushed her to another hospital and you know they're, they're trying all this treatment and they're putting her into her coma and, and that night at 2 a.m. in the morning, this is their third child, the doctor walks in and says, She's about to die, it's time to say goodbye. A, a pastor walks in, they actually said, you need a pastor to preach, and they'll go take a pastor. The pastor walks in and says, it's time to say goodbye to your child. This is what the pastor says. Grabs her hand and starts singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. And Matt, for a second, goes along with it and just says, he's like, shut up, no. Like, my daughter's gonna live. Like, I, I know God's got her in her hands, but I want her in my hands. And just starts declaring with faith for her life and that she would just make it through the night. And I'll never forget, I went to the hospital the next day. 
Me and my wife went down there and we walked into the room and somehow Ellie Faith had miraculously made it through the night, but she was hooked up on all this gear. We, we got a picture of it. She, was, she had all this equipment in this room and, and very similar to Jasmine's story, she, she had cords and cables and there's all this machinery and, and the doctors actually said, they said, you know how sick your child is based on how much equipment's in the room. And what we need, this is actually what they said. This was their message of hope. What we need is every day a little piece of equipment to remove from the room, but we don't think she's going to live. And if she lives, she's going to be brain dead and she'll be a vegetable and she'll be handicapped. There's never any way she's going to live a normal life. Are you hearing me? Do we have the picture? We do. And I remember sitting there and, I mean, if they're broken, as Jasmine's moms know, you're just sitting there and you're just broken. And I drive home that day and, as you've come to realize over the last three years of us being together that my brain's a little different than a lot of brains and thank you for tolerating it. And I'm driving home that day and I just started to think of the money being spent on this child. You know, that they had three to four doctors that came in every two hours to assess her condition. I would be there. They would stand there, write notes, and then talk to us. Now, those, those four doctors, their, their education probably cost, I started adding it up on my way home, about half a million each. So just from those four doctors, there's $2 million being spent. And then I started thinking that they had two nurses that are on 24-hour rotation watching her. They could never leave this child alone. And say their education was about $300,000 each, so that's $600,000. So now we're at $2.6 million just in the people that are in the room. Then I started thinking about the equipment and the investments into the studies and the clinical process that would allow this equipment to be used and all the doctors that would go through the process and then all of the insurance that was used to actually pay for the kids that would be previously treated by it to see if it was successful. And then I started thinking of the lights that were on and the renovation of the hospital wing. And then I started seeing the janitor janitorial services emptying trash. Are you with me, somebody? And I, I was driving home and I was like, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. I go, there's, I don't know, 12, 13, $14 million is being spent to keep this girl that's only been alive for one day alive for one more day. $14 million is being leveraged to give her one more breath when she's only had a day of breath. And there's not a person in the room, in the room tonight, or any doctor or nurse that would look at what was being spent and say, this is illogical. There's not a person that would say, this is too much. This is extravagant. This is a waste of funds. This is a waste of time. There's not a doctor working the floor that thought the time being invested in saving a life was being wasted. And in fact, if you approached me or my wife or Matt and Mel or any of our team and said, hey guys, if you could just get together 40 or 50,000 more dollars, if you guys could, could just do X, Y, and Z, if they said, hey, if you guys would just do a thousand jumping jacks and stand on one leg and cross the street backwards a hundred times a day, like we would just start, what do we got to do, right? Because there's a life at stake. Because we would do anything we could to keep this kid alive for one more day. Now think about that in light of eternity. What would we do? What would we spend? How would we leverage our life to give people an encounter with Jesus Christ that will not just keep them alive, but bring them from death back to life for the rest of eternity? What would we do? I mean, when it comes to an opportunity to give that victory, like, would we not just be crazy generous? Why? Because you're not giving to a building. You're giving to a message of Jesus Christ. You're not giving to the coffee shop. You're giving people an encounter with Jesus Christ. You're not trying to bring people to a program. You're trying to introduce people to a person called Jesus Christ. There's nothing being wasted here.
my Sejedadiah, man, you've gone about five minutes over. I'm not wasting a minute. I'm talking about eternity and what's at stake. Why won't we leverage our life for Christ? What are we going to do? If the bell's removed, we could see. I mean, there's not a moment of our journey with Ellie that we said this is foolish. You know how much we prayed for that girl? She was already going to go to heaven, but we wanted her to be alive on earth. How much are you praying for those that don't know Christ? Did we realize what's at stake with Easter seven days away? I don't think an ounce of Christ's blood was wasted. I don't think a drop of his sweat was in vain. Christ looked at the state of humanity and said, it's going to require all of me and then marched towards the cross, drove the nails in his hand, and said, for the joy set before me, which is each and every one of you in the room. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 